This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back. I'm Christopher Rose with the Center for Middle Eastern Studies, and my guest in the studio today is Michelle Daneri, who is a doctoral student in the Department of History here at the University of Texas at Austin, where she works on 20th century Native American issues. Welcome to the studio. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Today we're going to be talking about the social impacts and legacies of the era of Andrew Jackson, who of course was one of the more infamous of our 19th century presidents. So remind us who Andrew Jackson Jackson was and how he came to politics. Right. So when we think about Andrew Jackson, he's often, you know, remembered as a president of the people, incredibly popular and like attuned to people's needs and wants. This whole image kind of rises up from how he first became famous. And that was he was a war hero in the War of 1812. He was a major general and he became like hugely famous after his success in the Battle of New Orleans in 1815. So He would have, um, after this point, really been a household name. He would have been someone that people knew because this is like a time when, you know, if there's a big war, people people know these sorts of things. So he would have definitely been a huge celebrity. Um, Also, during his election campaign, he really um, worked on setting himself apart from presidents of the past. He wanted to show that he wasn't like one of these elites from like the Northeast, from New England and stuff, that he was like this, you know, from the backcountry. He was a frontiersman. He he was born in a cabin in Tennessee. He wasn't or, part so. of the Washington elites. Exactly, exactly. He didn't. <laughs> and I mean, that rhetoric still kind of comes out today, but that, right. that's he was trying to set himself apart. And this is actually like a really ironic persona for many reasons. And one being that he was, you know, incredibly wealthy. He owned owned a plantation with like many, many slaves. So he was one of like the wealthiest people in America. So although he did have like humble origins for sure, he wasn't just some guy that they like found in the frontier and had it had become president. So those are two reasons why he would be remembered as a president of the people. However, um, the third thing that he did that kind of made him have more mass appeal was that he extended the vote to nearly all white males. So this was a departure from voting being reserved for land holding people. And really kind of um, extended this perception that he, you know, cared about people and wanted more voices to be heard in Washington, D.C., you know? I, I don't guess that I'd realize that, that prior to that, it was only landholding males who could own. Yes. Yes. Wow. So okay. I, in a way, I mean, it is arguably elite, obviously. So he did extend the vote to more segments of the population, but obviously not everyone. Okay. So now we've extended the vote to white males. Now we're clearly leaving out other segments of the population. Yes, absolutely. So by 1840, 90% of white males could vote. But this, of course, left out a lot of people. I, I, for one, could think of women who wouldn't, you know, be able to vote until the ratification of the 19th Amendment in 1920. African Americans, you know, despite their status of freedom, of course, some were enslaved, some were not, they did not have the right to vote. And arguably, they didn't until, you know, the passing of the Voting Rights Act in 1965, where they like able to comfortably and consistently vote. And also Native Americans who were not citizens of the United States, you know, universally until 1924 with the passing of the Indian Citizenship Act. Before then, they were only citizens universally of their own like tribal nations. And then in 1924, whether they wanted to or not, were extended U.S. citizenship. So before that, obviously, they wouldn't be able to vote. And of course, today there are groups of people who still can't vote, such as like felons, children, non-citizens. So clearly, Jacksonian democracy didn't include everyone. It does extend who is included, but it surely does not cover everyone. Okay, so 
What was behind this expansion of, of, of the voting to, to, to more people than just landowners? Uh, was there some political interest behind it? Well, it would have um, really changed what political interests would have been or what priority issues would have been. Now, there had always been these tensions between mostly, you know, white people who wanted to have land and Native peoples. Earlier, when you see Bacon's Rebellion happening between frontiers, people upset that the British government siding with Native people rather than them. And that's something to remember that when these tensions are happening and the United States had, you know, formerly been a colony of, of the British, the British would have catered more to the needs of Native people because they were seen as like a diplomatic powers that you want to have um, good relations with. Otherwise, they could side with the French, the Spanish, someone else. So they had this real like diplomatic power that they won't have by the time um, the United States is in power because the United States is like this real imperial force in the area and they don't have that same leeway. So once the United States is in charge, once newly minted voters have um, a say, one of their top priority issues is going to be land acquisition. Even though people can vote without land, land is something you really need for status. I mean, think about how important holding land, this like pastoral images for all Americans. It's it's not a surprise that people who could now vote would want want to have access to these like desirable lands in the southeast United States. Uh, we're talking about the southeast, the area that's now what, Florida, yeah, Georgia. Yeah, so we're talking about like the southeast, deep south, the Carolinas, Georgia, and such. So this area. Um, and by this point, we also had the Louisiana Purchase, which was still kind of being divided up. And of course, the problem was that there were people living there, even if we didn't recognize them as citizens at the time. Yes, absolutely. So even though the U.S. is pushing further west, there's still this desire to take up ownership in parts that had already kind of been in the U.S. So, of course, these areas in the southeast that would be owned by Native people were their own nations. There's a desirability to see that become part of the U.S. and become lands that largely like non-elite white people can have access to. So clearly we're heading into an era, a bit of tension here because we've got one group of people who claims that they own the land because they've been living on it and another group of people who have basically created a nation on top of it. So what role is, is Andrew Jackson playing in all of this? What is his opinion and how is he expressing them as the newly elected president of the United States? Well, that is a very interesting question. And I'd like to set up a little bit about what Jackson's past role had been with Native people. Okay. So one thing that Jackson took part of before he became president was that he played a really prominent role in aggressing the Seminole people in Florida. This happens, of course, when Florida is still owned by the Spanish. The Seminole people are a group of Native people who lived there and were largely seen as a threat to the, you know, American nation, especially because they were in this, like, southern borderlands where escaped slaves could possibly go to. And the Seminole people are kind of, like, famed or unique for embracing into membership these formerly escaped slaves. So they were seen as this huge threat to slave owners. So that's one reason why he invaded. And and this is really remembered as something very brutal. There are a lot of, like, massacres that take place between 
um, Jackson and these people. So, and it's kind of like interesting that this aggression happens because previously Jackson had actually um, allied with Native people in the War of 1812. As I had mentioned earlier about the Battle of New Orleans, he had to like round up a lot of people to fight with him. And a lot of people who fought with him were actually Native people. So you see a real change in his attitude towards Native people somewhere in between there. But he's definitely known as someone who doesn't have positive feelings towards them. In fact, he has like a very paternal attitude towards him. And and you can look at political cartoons that kind of, of the time that would portray him as this like father figure to Native people. So by the time this, this issue of uh, land acquisition comes up and he's newly president, he's pushing forward this idea of the Indian Removal Act, which was framed as a voluntary migration of Native people to Indian territory west of Mississippi, as you had mentioned about um, these like land purchases that happen, migration would have pushed them even further west, west of the Mississippi into like present day Oklahoma, a land where you know no one lived in at this time. But we'll see; will also become desirable at some point. So, but it's also interesting that I mentioned that this would have been a very favored move. However, it did face some opposition. And one, like, sector of society that would have been really upset about this was Christian missionaries. They opposed this. And also Davy Crockett. He's a famous figure who also opposed it. And it was people who were kind of, like, familiar with Native people, a little bit more personally vested in their issues. So it wasn't this, like, issue that everyone, you know, supported. It was something that people other than Native people did oppose. However, ultimately, we'll see that Indian removal was not voluntary and it actually came out of a lot of violent coercion. So when when was the Indian Removal Act actually passed? 1830 and authorized a voluntary, again, migration of Native people to federal lands in present-day Oklahoma. Okay. We've now mentioned two or three times that the Indian Removal Act was supposed to authorize voluntary migration, but it wasn't voluntary, if I'm not mistaken. No, absolutely not. In practice, it ended up being incredibly violent and coerced by, you know, by the army. It was a forced removal of um, the five civilized tribes, which were the Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw Creek, and Seminole peoples. And it would be absolutely devastating for them. Why are they called the five civilized tribes out of curiosity? Well, actually, that's an interesting question. One of the reasons why was that they, a lot of these tribes owned slaves and kind of practiced the same kind of economic practice that other people practice in the South. So it was this idea that they were a little bit more white, a little bit more European. They were civilized. So if there was like a scale of Native people and how, you know, savage to civilize, the five civilized tribes were further up there. Okay. And so they were pretty much forcibly removed to the territory that is now Oklahoma. Yes, absolutely. They were forced tribe by tribe by the U.S. Army, starting with 1831. That was the first forced removal, and it would continue until the 1838 with the Cherokee. So what was that forced migration like for the people who went on it? And this this is, if I'm not mistaken, what is popularly referred to as the Trail of Tears, correct? Yes, that's correct. That's a um, an important name for a reason. It really encapsulates like the trauma and devastation that it caused. I have a quote to read from Eliza Whitmore. She was age five when she experienced removal as a member of an enslaved family. The aged, sick, and young children rode in the wagons, which carried provisions and bedding, while others went on foot. The trip was made in the dead of winter, and many died from exposure from sleet and snow, and all who lived to make this trip or had parents who made it 
will long remember it as a bitter memory. So this quote really um, is interesting for two reasons. One that is that Eliza Whitmore is part of an enslaved family. So we have to to note that it wasn't only um, indigenous people, native people who were removed. Their slaves also had to go with them. So that's interesting to get her perspective from that. Another interesting point that she brings up is that it's something that people remember. It's something that had a lasting effect. It was very traumatizing to have gone through this and truly devastating to be removed from your homeland, forcibly removed like very, very far to these new lands that are kind of like desolate, even just like geographically, environmentally, nothing like where you lived before. Right. We're talking about slaves that were coming from the South, the Deep South, which is, you know, sort of humid, forest, marshy, and they're going to Oklahoma, which is basically grazing land, flat, plain, more extreme climate. Yeah, that's correct. And that would actually create a whole new slew of problems for the five civilized tribes who are moved there. Once they get there, they're encouraged by the U.S. government to practice agriculture. They end up devastating, exhausting the land and the Dust Bowl ends up happening. That's largely framed as like this chapter in the Great Depression where all these people from Oklahoma were removed, but this other dimension, not removed, but, you know, economically kind of forced out. But the kind of thing that gets, you know, brushed under and talked about even less is that a lot of these people were Native people. So it's kind of like this whole pressure of moving west doesn't even just end with the Trail of Tears. Again, you know, consequences pile up and and you see people having to move to California during the Depression. So you've already mentioned that the Dust Bowl is sort of a indirect result of this forced migration of people who didn't really know how to work that kind of land after a couple of generations. What are the other lasting effects of the the Trail of Tears migration? Well, one, um, maybe a little bit more commemorative aspect of it is that people today continue to do pilgrimages to remember this certain chapter in native history that may be walking pilgrimages there's also motorcycle pilgrimages so really yes so it's very interesting to see that um people still find ways to commemorate and remember and as i had mentioned earlier about enslaved people being removed with the tribes there would be lasting societal conflicts with these people who would eventually become freedmen in these societies the question is at least for um, a lot of these groups, was like, how did they become incorporated after? Do they get full citizenship? The U.S. government like mandates that they do, but of course that creates some societal tensions. Native people aren't separate from the rest of society and have some of the same ideas that mainstream society would have about race and difference. So um, they're not exempt from the feeling that that black people should be like marginalized or not included or somehow treated unequally. So you see that become like a real a real challenge that continues today with like freedman controversies with um, some of these groups not wanting to acknowledge or extend membership to people who really did endure this experience that everyone everyone had shared and is really like a big part of who these people are today. It's something that they collectively experience, whether their origins were can be traced back to being like indigenous before exploration and colonization, or they were enslaved and made to experience this trauma along with the rest of the community. Right. So um, the other uh, question that sort of pops up into my head is, is eventually uh, Oklahoma became desirable 
land as well, even though uh, these people had already been relocated there. So how did that work or, or did it work? Well, that's fascinating because Oklahoma was originally selected as Indian territory and set aside for these people because of its undesirability and its remoteness. Like, oh, that's way over there, west of the Mississippi. We'll just put all these Native people over there. You know, it's not a problem. However, as, you know, we can think about the way the United States expanded past Oklahoma, obviously that's going to become desirable eventually, and it does. When people are, are pushing west, there's another newfound pressure by the late, like, 19th century to open up these lands for white settlement. And what ends up happening is something called land runs. So what happened was that they ended up cutting Indian territory in half. Native people now had half of Oklahoma were, you know, pushed into smaller allotments and reservations and were, you know, systematically given the less desirable land. The other half was open up to settlers. And what they would do was they would literally have all these people lined up at like a line, shoot a gun, and people would run and claim land. So the Trail of Tears, Indian removal wouldn't mark the end of Native people consistently losing land and being like undermined by our larger national government. It continues as their land always becomes um, desirable one way or another. And as we mentioned at the beginning of this episode, they wouldn't even be able to claim citizenship until 1924, was it? Yes, that's correct. So that's something important to notice because while different segments of the population can vote, Native people don't have like a voting voice that other people would have. So it's very, it's difficult. And of course, we can still see some of these issues playing out even today with uh, migrant workers and um you know, issues having to do with sovereignty on reservations, et, et cetera, in, in the Western United States. Yeah, absolutely. Problems are still ongoing. Um, and problems become really complicated, too. Uh, during the 50s, um, the United States government starts terminating the, like, you know, tribal sovereign status of groups, meaning that we're just going to incorporate them into the, the rest of the United States, and it's going to be great for them. They'll progress like the rest of us. However, the real effect is, of that is that people um, and reservations, groups, native groups lose the communal holding of land. Land gets owned by individuals, and then individuals can easily be, you know, swindled or even just economically, you know, motivated to sell their land. So that, again, is another way in which the, you know, lands of Native people are slowly chipped away at. So it's something that that definitely continues today. I I think it comes to mind, um, it's something that people obviously try to push back against. I, one group I could think of, the Coast Miwok in Northern California, only have one square mile left, but it's something that they're holding on to because they don't want to lose. It's important. Land is really, really important to, like, Native identity and tribal sovereignty. Well, I'm afraid that's all the time we have today. Michelle, thank you so much for being with us in the studio. Thank you for having me. And we'll see you next time. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with supplemental documents, suggestions for further reading, and correlations to this Texas and National Educational Standards for History and Geography on our website, blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15-minute history. That's the numerals 1-5-minute history. You can also find a link to suggest topics for upcoming episodes. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-minute history do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.